Hello and welcome to Vet Club. This will be a student journal club edition. Um, and so this is this is something new, a little bit new. I mean, journal club is obviously not new for anybody who's been listening. Um, we've been doing journal club, but uh, this is student edition. So I have... Uh, invited all of the students essentially at Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine to um, choose whether or not they want to participate. And this is our first one. And so I'm, I'm super excited to welcome our first guest for Student Journal Club, um, Amit Atwal and or Atwal. Yes, Amit Atwal. Atwal. Okay, sorry. And so Thank you for joining today. Super excited that you're here. Um, I basically just sent out an email to all four classes. I was like, let's see if anybody wants to. So this is extra This is extra work for you. You have volunteered for. This is not part of any class. You don't get any grade. You're not getting paid. Um, and so nope, nope. I was like, you know what? We we have plenty of free time on clinic. That's so right. Yeah, let, you're not let's, busy. Let's sign up. You know. So you signed up for the very first one. Yeah. Yeah. Which awesome. Thank you for doing that. Um, so you are a new third year, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, so you've just started your clinical rotations. You're on your very first clinical rotation. And um, but so tell me a little bit about your just general experience with journal clubs and why you decided to sign up for this. So then we'll get to the journal. <laughs> okay. So I actually don't really have any experience with journal clubs. Um, I unof we'll, we'll discuss them unofficially back home at an ER work with my dad is an ER vet, like I told you. Yeah. So sometimes I'll find articles on random things that are fascinating, especially emergency medicine, surgical techniques, weird anesthesia cases and discuss it with him or one of our doctors or surgeons. So you've been doing an informal journal club yeah. with your dad for a while. Yeah, for, <laughs> I've literally grown up in clinics yeah, um, yeah. since I was about three or four. Yeah. Um, so it's it's been a long time coming and I figured, you know, now's the time to actually get into a formal sure. journal club. Yeah. And I love emergency medicine. So awesome. Because that's also what your dad does. Yeah. yeah he does yeah. mostly an ER now. Yeah. He um, almost exclusively ER with the occasional wellness stuff, but yeah. he, he's much more... He's happier in the ER. Yeah, world. he has a yeah, lot more fun okay. in ER. So that's fair. I mean, you're you're talking to you know the right <laughs> crowd when you say that. Not everybody agrees, but um, so yeah. So you were like, you know, I don't do a formal journal club, but I'm interested in just various things, and um, and so um, I threw out you know a couple of options um, for articles, and um, we had a couple, but ultimately, let's see. Oh, I just got to get this in here. Yeah, we, we talked about a few, um, but you chose the long-term outcome of dogs recovering from acute kidney injury, 132 cases. This um, is a, a recent publication. This came out of the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine in January of 2020. Or when did, no, 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 hang on. When did this get published? April or I think it was in, yeah, it got received in January 2022. Yeah, that's when it was but received, but it didn't get published. in April 2022. Because it it's an online publication, yeah. but I can't remember when it was. So April is when it was accepted, but when did yeah. they? So April or May. It's a recent one. Okay. So yeah. within the last month or so. Um, and so that that's the article. So we have, um, you know, the authors, um, Bar Nathan, Chen, Reimer, and Segev. Uh, if I'm probably not pronouncing all of those right, but you can you can look it up. So you read the article, and so we're 
we said this is a more formal, but it's really still not that formal. <laughs> We're not going to make it super <laughs> duper formal. Um, mostly I just, you know, we want to review it. Like what did they do? What, what was good? What was bad? What, what's our take home message? So maybe we can start Amit, with you just telling us what the study was about. So this was more retrospective study. I think it was cases from about 2015 to 2021 that went back, um, and of course, dogs only, and checked and saw patients that were hospitalized for acute kidney injuries and basically tried to see, is their serum creatinine a viable marker of, you know, a relapse or getting CKD after discharge or um, in terms of long-term outcome because AKIs are so common. I mean, Mm -hmm. we see them very commonly in cats, um, but even dogs like lepto and those have been some of the hemodialysis patients. They also went over, you know, different types of treatment. Does it alter the chance that they develop a CKD after being discharged from hospitalization or where do the parameters, the renal parameters that we have right now, how well do they actually measure it? And um, since it is such a slow progressive condition to develop chronic kidney chronic disease kidney, yeah. after the fact. Um, so I mainly chose this just because it has a lot of application in the ER, not just in internal medicine, because yeah. it is something very commonly. Yeah. I mean, we don't see many ethylene glycol cases. but Fortunately. Uh, yeah, but same thing. So... Um, they went through, it was all done at their teaching hospital at the Corrett School of Veterinary Medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they used the IRIS guidelines to diagnose it mm-hmm. um, and then stage through the various stages. Um, and then they used the serum creatinine at its peak during yeah, hospitalization, peak during hospitalization. Yep. Yeah, to classify and give them IRIS AKI mm-hmm. scores. Yep. Um, and then uh, so they went back through all the medical records. They did exclude a few different classes of patients so i believe if they didn't survive to about a month well one if they didn't survive discharge they didn't use them if they passed within 30 days of discharge whether euthanasia or naturally they also didn't use their data yeah what are your what are your thoughts on that so i mean i was kind of mixed on that because to to say that you know it didn't seem like it was being cherry picking per se, (laughs) but if you're only choosing your best outcomes and you can't really say it's representative of a whole, there was definitely a good amount of data in there that is helpful because I saw one of the main points that they brought up quite a few times was the expense associated with attempting to treat AKIs and even whether or not they make it out of the hospital. And it does, there is a high morbidity mortality rate, I think, they had thrown out numbers between the mid 40s to low 60%. Yeah. But they also, I think the point that they were trying to make overall through it was that just because it is a severe condition or can be mm-hmm. acutely severe, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a death sentence. Right. So they did have, they were showing that the, and again, some of these follow ups, a lot of these patients were still alive. So they yeah. said some of them, you mm-hmm. know, years after the fact, they're yeah. doing completely fine. And these may have ca- been cases that owners may have wanted to proceed with financially motivated euthanasia because they mm-hmm. may have said, you know, if we're going to go in this for a few thousand with no guarantee, you yeah. go on Dr. Google and see, you know, <laughs> cat kidney disease. It's one of the top results. Well, and I, yeah, I think for me, the, the fact that they excluded the patients who didn't survive to 30 days, initially you're just like, wait, what? That's, that's it. But the, the point of this article, what they're saying is we want to look at long-term outcome. And if, you know, if the patient dies while it's still in the hospital or in that first month, 
you know, yes, that, that they're, that's certainly an important cohort of patients to look into, but that's not what they were looking at. Their whole point was to say, if this patient recovers from its acute kidney injury, what kind of a long-term outcome can I expect or can I, can I prepare my clients for? Because I think a lot of us who treat a lot of kidney injury worry about like, you know, there was injury. You know, we, we don't know how much, we know the kidneys have a capacity to heal, but it's hard to quantify that. And we also know that our ability to um, assess the degree of kidney injury is pretty crummy. Like BUN and creatinine are very insensitive. And so I, I know I've certainly over the years discharged patients after, you know, an apparent recovery or even some that I send home and they're still a little azotemic, but they're clinically doing well. And you have this like, I don't know, the kidneys may continue to heal over the next several months, or there may be some underlying chronic kidney disease. And, you know, how cautious do you need to be? Do you have to avoid NSAIDs for the rest of this patient's life? Blah, blah. And we just don't have that long-term information. And this, this adds a, a very important, in my opinion, perspective on what happens a month later, what happened to, to these dogs years later? Um, because it, like, as you said, there's, um, you know, because of the the time frame they looked at, I think you're right, 2015. Um, you know, many of these animals are still alive, and so they often have like the the estimated or the uh, the estimated median the survival medium time survival because time. they're saying yep. it's actually underestimating things because the number of yeah. our patients haven't died yet, and so um, it's quite long. So I think it's really nice to be able to tell clients like we know that AKI is bad in the short term. We know it has a, a, a relatively high mortality rate, but if you get past that first month the odds are actually pretty darn good that your pet is going to fully recover. Yeah. Is, it, in any, is, is, is best we can tell fully recover. Yeah. And going back to the monitoring too, that was one of the things that they brought up. They said, you know, BUN, creatinine, mm-hmm. urine specific gravity and SDMA, they're all right, but they're still not yeah, that great. None of them and, are that sensitive. And a lot of them lag. Sometimes they don't mm-hmm. match. Sometimes there's mm-hmm. been cases SDMA is elevated, but BUN, creatinine, year in specific gravity or normal yeah. they're not showing any outward signs and the dog's clinically doing well and so that so was who cares and that was one of the things i think especially in er2 you'll see a lot of times we'll see you know kidney patients gone to internists and they'll be like well the bun's still high it's at this amount but you have this cat or dog at home who's eating great mm-hmm. showing no signs of kidney yeah. disease so it brought up the question of you know maybe we don't need to discharge or treat based on the numbers, but a lot more based on how they're clinically doing. Yes. It's important for, you know, the numbers to ideally trend downward. You also don't want it. But at the end of the day, we don't treat numbers. We treat patients. But at the end of the day, if they're doing fine, they're stable, Mm -hmm. they're eating and drinking normal bowel movements, urination, why not send them home where, you know, there's studies and people that Mm -hmm. people don't recover as quick and hospitals so yeah of course not animals probably don't either yeah and i'm and you know cats are already not the biggest fan of being in hospitals but (laughs) even dogs you have you know a 70 80 pound dog he's not going to be a fan of being in a cage for three to five days on fluids i think that was the other really cool i mean and this is something i've observed uh, observed anecdotally, but it was nice to have an article kind of pointing out that a lot of these patients had their azotemia normalized in hospital, but there was a substantial proportion that left the hospital azotemic and then later their azotemia resolved. And so it's a good reminder that, you know, healing continues to happen even after we are specifically, you know, providing supportive care, like the body heals. It's, it's pretty good in a lot of cases. Yeah. And that was one of the things too, they did bring up in their discussion because that, 
around the average time of follow-up was about 30 days after discharge. Mm-hmm. And they said some may have normalized two days after right, discharge. Right. Some, it may have been a week, yeah. three weeks, four weeks, but it's also not viable, you know, and also why would you want to blood test them every single day to you see? You wouldn't. Well, you quick- might, but who cares? <laughs> the animal wouldn't want you to. Yeah. And so that was one of the things they said, you know, if I think the main point that they were trying to get out of this study was, yes, like you said, this disease do- can have many complications. Mm-hmm. It's not something you want to ideally have your no. patient have, but we've come a long way and, you know, not just relying on the biochemical markers if we rely more on how the patient is actively doing and their appearance and their demeanor Mm -hmm. may give us more guidelines but they did have quite a few going back to the median survival time that were still alive after at the conclusion of the study so they said you know the median survival time is probably understated because to have a true you know you would need to that point of death and a lot of them were still alive and not only that not all of the animals the dogs that died in this study died from kidney disease in fact if i i I don't know that i have my numbers right but of the animals that did not you know that died throughout the study i think it was like a third of them died from non-kidney related illness a third of them was documented kidney related illness and then a third of them they didn't have a document like they didn't know why the patient died or was euthanized that those are very rough numbers oh, yeah. i don't remember but it was it was a substantial proportion that were documented to have died from completely unrelated diseases like they got hemangiosarcoma or they died from their progressive congestive heart failure you know whatever things that was like it's not the kidneys that has led to this patient's death exactly because a lot i think a lot also the bigger concept was a lot of these aki patients they weren't actually chronic kidney patients or renal mm-hmm. compromised yeah, patients. some of them were some of them were but they also had a lot of infectious inflammatory mm-hmm. they had quite a few yeah. pancreatitis i think they even had a chf diuresis patient that was studied it just so, got a lot of furosemide and, and, and yeah overdid and it a little trauma. bit and yeah. i think one of the surprising things was all of their nephrotoxic cases had a hundred percent reversibility or to yeah. the extent that they can reverse it yeah. and survive the discharge. Yeah, so. that's very much going to depend on the toxin you're yeah, talking about. Again, also. you've already mentioned ethylene glycol. Yeah. That you would not have those numbers if, if no. they had ethylene glycol. So that's going to depend on the common um, toxins that are in your area. So I don't want to give people the impression yeah. that, you know, all, all nephrotoxic cases, but they can get better in a lot yeah. of cases if you can either reverse it or support the kidney through. I think that's the the, the important take-home message um, from my perspective is that kidneys can heal. Yeah. They absolutely can heal if um, if we give them enough time. And the hard part is it's hard to give kidneys time to heal when kidneys are broken, the rest of the body dies. <laughs> We've talked about this on the show before that kidneys are super important for maintaining, you know, a healthy body. And um, and so if all the other organs are are shutting down because the kidneys have broken, then it, it doesn't, buy, the kidneys don't have time. Um, and that's where things like dialysis um, can help, but even just our supportive care to help make them feel better um, um, and uh, and relieve their suffering while they're going through that awful period of not um, not having good working kidneys. Um, but so there was there was a lot of a lot of really good stuff. As you mentioned, this was retrospective, so there's a lot of limitations in that. There's not. Um, uh, there's not a lot of control. They didn't have standardization, as you had already kind of alluded to, when the BUN and creatinine was rechecked at various times. Like that wasn't standardized. Um, but I think because one, they had a, a fairly sizable number of patients included, and um, two, like those survival times are pretty impressive. Like I think yeah. this this sheds a lot of useful information on you know what what's going on and and that 
yeah, patients can do really well. And yeah, some of these patients were from the mid 2000 teens from 2015, 2016 yep. that are still, still alive, alive and doing well. Yep. And I mean, they did come up with some recommended parameters where they tried to account for, you know, older dogs that sure. may have a slow recovery and the fact that the CKD is a very slow progression. But mm -hmm. it did seem also going through it that the underlying etiology of what caused the AKI yeah. seemed to be a lot more uh, or bigger influencing factor on one, whether they would make it out to discharge and also more so even than the severity yeah. of their azotemia. Yeah. yeah. And that was kind of what they, it seemed that they yeah. were harping on was, yeah, you, you know, your BUN might be immeasurable throughout yeah. the whole state and creatinine may be five or 10 and 15, it, 30 and yeah. or something. The highest one was I, something ridiculous yeah. like that. And they said it, it may only come down a little bit, but yeah. You know, it may just never normalize, but some of them are still but doing fine. Can, well. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I did a fair bit of dialysis when I was at Florida. We've talked about this a little bit in the past. And yeah, if you can just get them to where they're feeling good um, and then over time and not all of them, you know, had complete resolution of their azotemias, but they had, they still had um, a good quality of life. And that was um, one of the interesting findings for me that whether or not their azotemia normalized wasn't a good predictor of what their median survival time was going to be. That didn't actually, um, if I'm remembering right, didn't have an impact that they could have a persistent azotemia and still have a really long survival time after their injury. Yeah. They said that was that was something kind of surprising. It, I was honestly shocked at that too. I was like, you know, okay, I know they say don't necessarily treat the numbers, but at the same time, it's kind of scary to send them home with a creatinine <laughs> of three or four, yeah, but if it stays at three or four for the next five or six years, who cares? Yeah. And that you was a good one quality of, of life. Yeah. Thing. Cause that's one of the things, you know, you discharge them to the client and you know, they see a whole bunch of red and then they're <laughs> like, wait, all these look really high. This should only be, you know, 0.4 to 1.4 and mm -hmm. this creatinine's four and then you kind of tell them okay again yeah, but it doesn't you know, matter based on how the patient and yeah. so they did have some different parameters they recommended in terms of rechecking and monitoring sure. and you know and one of the things they did bring up also was um the serum creatinine concentration the high end being 1.4 was a little bit still high for yeah. smaller breeds miniature breeds like chihuahuas yorkies even non-small breeds i think it's still and so yeah. they said so so even that even if we say okay they have a quote-unquote normal serum creatinine at right. 1.4 that may still be elevated right. on a breed to breed basis or patient to patient yeah. so they said you know we've gone a long time how many dogs that, you know, before this study had a creatinine of one, four, one, five, and they've mm -hmm. been doing fine at home. Oh, and those reference ranges have changed. Uh, it used to be like a lot of them were uh, high ones or even low to mid twos for the upper range of creatinine for a lot of uh, parameters, a lot of reference ranges. Uh, and so we've learned over the years that actually we should probably narrow that reference range a bit more for creatinine. Um, but yeah, like 15, 20 years ago, two and a half people wouldn't have batted their eyes about where now people are like, no, 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 that's, we should take note of this. Um, so, yeah. So overall, I, I would say this, you know, well done study um, provides some useful information. What are some of the, the flaws that you saw that what are some of the things that you're like, oh, I wish they'd done this differently or I think they over, you know, they overstated this. Did you have any any complaints there? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say complaints, <laughs> but I mean, they also, to be fair, did address this and or mm -hmm. at least most of them in the discussion and the acknowledgments, too, and said that. Um, one of the things is they didn't account for dehydration or hydration status sure. affecting azotemia at right. presentation because hydration yeah. status is very subjective. Yeah, we suck and, at it. <laughs> and Mike, you yeah. know, I guess. So a lot of these could have a pre-renal Yeah, component. so they yeah. said that. And also mm -hmm. they said also in 
since that they did find the etiology seemed to be more correlated with the outcomes. They also said some of those weren't confirmed diagnoses and were just based on presumptions and weren't confirmed. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if just having dogs versus cats would change things, but it Mm -hmm. seems like it would be nice just since we do predominantly associated kidney disease with cats to have a study on that. But I mean, the facts that it's still it still clearly shows that they can have a decent median survival time yeah. even with all these issues. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would I would say I mean both dogs and cats get yeah. both um, AKI and and NCKD. I think when you're you know picturing the older cat, you know, 15 years of age and older, we know 15% of those cats will have CKD. Um, but for AKI, I mean, it's, it's, that's anybody can yeah. at any time. I think I would take a step further. One of my, again, it complain again, this was a really good study. It was well done. Really pleased that they put it out there. But a couple of, I think, other limitations that I would highlight, um, you know, when they categorized infectious diseases altogether. And that's fair. That's fair. I'm sure they did that in advance, but then 14 of the 15 dogs had lepto. So can you you really extrapolate that to all infectious diseases. They had, I was kind of surprised by that too. Not that they had 14 lepto, but they only had one that they diagnosed with pyelonephritis. And so, you know, saying, oh, infectious causes have a great outcome. You're like, well, no, lepto had a good (laughs) outcome. And then one case of pyelonephritis, you can't really, you know, extrapolate. What about other infectious diseases? If you don't have Lyme disease that, you know, maybe Lyme disease would change things quite a lot. Similarly, um, the, uh, you know, so, so just how do you extrapolate from that? The toxins is the other one that we've already kind of mentioned here, depending on which toxins your, your, your population has been exposed to might dramatically change those numbers as well. Um, so, you know, this, this is a teaching hospital. So presumably, you know, they're, they're collecting cases from a large geographic area. Um, but it's in, based in Jerusalem. And so the infectious diseases are going to be, you know, unique to that part of the world. The toxins are also going to be probably somewhat, you know, different in a certain part of the world. So you do have to be a little careful extrapolating this to whatever region you're practicing in. Um, I'm not saying throw this all out and it doesn't apply at all. I, I do think that, um, you know, this certainly fits with, I think, anecdotally what I've experienced with some really severe AKI cases that can go on and have a wonderful long-term outcome. But, you know, you do have to keep in mind, like, well, what specifically, what types of AKIs am I seeing in my area and in my hospital? And you may have to make some adjustments. So those are a couple other things that I wish they could have um, emphasized a little bit more that, you know, this isn't really an infectious disease category. This is it's, lepto it's category. It's more like a lepto yeah. and a one pilo. And, right. But someone, you know, who's in a high lepto endemic oh, sure. area, they can be like, okay, you know, yeah. before I would say go straight to, you know, your closest hemodialysis. But that was actually one interesting thing too i found they said they didn't they couldn't definitively say for patients that medical management was better or worse than hemodialysis but again the other thing is you don't necessarily need hemodialysis for all those patients so you would also have to wait of where it would be appropriate to be considered right but it does seem like medical management has come a long way and you know, yeah, that one's tricky because you know if you're in a facility that has hemodialysis, um, you know the the sicker patients are likely to get hemodialysis, yeah. and um, and so you know they they likely needed it. The ones that they thought needed hemodialysis but couldn't get it likely got euthanized and were not included yeah. in this study. So if you were well enough to not need hemodialysis, you know you're going to be uh, you know surviving the 30 days more likely, but 
if you had that severe disease and got, so if you get the appropriate treatment, so whether or not that's dialysis is going to be situation dependent. Um, so I'm not surprised in this retrospective study that, you know, they didn't see a dramatic difference between those who got and didn't get dialysis. You'd have to do a very different study to say that, um, maybe you don't need dialysis to treat AKI because again, no. I suspect that a lot of those got filtered out and they were um, the group that, that they didn't, didn't survive the yet. 30 days. Yeah. That would be my suspicion. Now I don't know that, but that would be my suspicion Or even to discharge Exa too, yeah. because they yeah. did exclude some that exactly. were euthanized or just yeah. didn't make it. So if you're discharge. recommending hemodialysis because the patient looks terrible and they can't afford it and you end up like, okay, that those yeah. were not included in this study. Um, but um, so you'd have to do a different kind of prospective assessment for patients that like, okay, if we treat it this, way um, with dialysis they do this and without it so um, I, I still think you know I, I, I wouldn't I, and and I appreciated that the authors didn't try to say these treatments are associated with yeah. a good outcome or these are associated with a worse outcome they didn't even attempt to do that because they shouldn't have and that was the right thing they were just like this is what's happening like yeah. we provide the appropriate supportive care we can all debate and whatever that they didn't even spend a lot of time talking about what the treatment was because it's change. It's so complicated. And in a retrospective, you are never going to be able to get, you know, lists of things like that. Yeah. But they're saying if they recover from AKI, if they survive 30 days out, they're probably going to do pretty well. I mean, that's yeah. yeah. And even with the retrospective, they also mentioned too, that they're, they're relying on clinician records. So they said, you know, not everyone writes records uniformly. Absolutely. So that's one mm -hmm. of the things, which I mean, did seem like minor because I think in terms of what their main point was, which was, it seemed to be assessing whether serum creatinine levels affect long-term outcome yeah. unit survival time. In terms of that, they had the data and they were yep. able to develop a good study with a decent sample size, yep. um, which was nice. So I'm hoping that this gives clinicians and clients a little bit more hope when they do have AKI yeah. patients. So that's a nice you know, segue into my last question for you, Amit, which is how does this if at all, change your approach in veterinary medicine? What are you going to do differently from here on out? So I like we were talking before about the testing. I think the testing is very important. Don't get me wrong. There's some electrolyte imbalances that we are definitely more worried about, especially stuff like severe hypo or hyperkalemia that mm -hmm. you might want to definitely try to correct prior to discharge and stabilize them. But I think especially in the ER situation where sometimes we get we just get so aggressive on trying to get the numbers down, but sometimes we need to realize that at the end of the day, we're an advocate for our patients and our patients, their body might not want the numbers down, but <laughs> you know, they may start responding positively. And, um, and if outwardly they're doing better, you know, like I said, we can, we do need to develop some type of renal parameters that would be a little bit more applicable or see changes sooner, mm -hmm. but it seems like we're far away out from that. But I think, honestly, we just need to go back to we do have a lot of technology. I mean, you could attempt glomerular filtration rate and checking all that. But I think it, you're not well, going to No. <laughs> and ultimately, it, is it a wise use of the client's money either? No. And if and they brought up so many times that AKIs are very expensive to treat. Yeah. So I feel like that's one of the biggest roadblocks. So, you know, maybe those patients that are really severe and, you know, we're on that fence about, okay, they definitely need hospitalization and a client's going to say, you know, okay, I can't do hospitalization. Maybe we should word it in a way that it's not the only choice. Granted, like you said, it's going to be case by case. Right. We're going to need to see if it's a severe 
case and there's over 10% yeah. dehydration, we know realistically. Right. That sub, one needs some care. Yeah, sub-Q yeah. fluids isn't. But maybe if we're on the fence, we yeah. attempt outpatient treatment yep. and see, okay. And that. what worst case is, you know, they get a couple of days to spend their time and they can attempt it. It's better than yep. nothing. Give it and, a shot. And especially now that we know that median survival time is very good and who knows, maybe mm -hmm. they'll respond positively enough that they might just need minor hospitalization in a day yeah. or two yep. because it seems, it seems like a lot of the ones I think they're trying to prevent just humane euthanasia that's yeah. proactively done. So I think because they're worried about the long-term issues, the long-term yeah. because yeah, that's, that's one of the biggest, biggest on questions we get is, okay, well, you know, the estimate is X amount to X amount now, but what about long-term? What do I yeah. need to do in a month? Or but if he gets over this in a month, yeah. he's going to go on and live a good life and it's going to yeah. be good. Yeah. I love that. I love, uh, you know, focusing on, you know, we're treating the patients, not the numbers and let's be responsible with the client's money. And also like, trust the patient when it tells you it's feeling better. Like yeah. who cares what the number's telling you, right? Like if the patient's like, hey, I feel pretty good. I feel like eating. I feel like doing my normal stuff. He's not lying to you. Yeah. Like, and just believe and if him. you have that dog who's normally fractious that might need to be pre-medded before an exam and you see, okay, you go in the morning and at rounds and they're trying to snap and bite. That might hey, actually be a what? good thing. Exactly You're like, right. okay, they're feeling well More like themselves. to, to want to be themselves. So I think yeah. at the end of the day, even though they clearly can't speak, we, we definitely we need to trust to the patient yeah. and assess the patient more than, you know, any monitor mm. or any lab work can, yep. like I said, definitely has a place. Yeah. We want the numbers to be normal, but that in the absence of that, if the patient feels good, if the patient feels bad, that's a very different situation of yeah. course, but yeah, and yeah. We need to give them a chance because if they get through this again, not all of them will, but if they do, their odds of a, a good long life are pretty darn high. Yeah. And especially with a disease, what's such with a proven slow progression, I think yeah. we can do well. And you mean if they get secondary yeah, CKD? Yeah. 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 And that was one of the things I think they touched upon the yeah. recurrence of another AKI yeah. or if they went into CKD we don't know. and got it. But I mean, it seems like there's more hope now than five or 10 years ago, mm -hmm. especially with something so common. So yeah, I think it's just ultimately it's just relying on the patient and what the patient is telling us. You know, if they're like, I'm eating and drinking, yeah, pull it's my our catheter, job to listen. send me home. I yes, don't please. want I don't want you guys taking my temp every four hours or oh, my God, blood no. pressure. They're like, yeah. send me home. I'm eating. We deserve drinking. to get bitten at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, awesome. Um, Amit, well, I, I mean, I feel like we hit all the high points. I mean, that's really the, the big take home is, you know, give your AKI patients a chance. Again, this was dogs only, but I feel like um, you know, and maybe maybe they'll come out with a, a corollary for a cat soon. Hopefully that somebody was like, let's just do both at the same time. Um, but I would not be shocked if you found similar numbers um, for AKI in cats. Um, we have some numbers for CKD in cats, but the AKI would be would be an awesome uh, kind of sister paper. So we'll keep our eyes peeled for that one. But yeah. um, thank you so very much for coming on to the show and talking about um, talking about this article with me. No I really problem. appreciate it. Thank you for yeah. having me. Well done. Yep, thank you, you did great for your um, first. I, we're, I still don't want to call it formal. It's not a formal <laughs> journal club. It's just like sitting around having a conversation after reading a cool article. So um, thanks to the authors of the article. Again, this was Long-Term Outcome of Dogs Recovering from AKI. Um, and we'll put a link to that um, on, the, on the podcast uh, website. And I think, I don't know. I think that's, uh, that's all I have. I don't think I have anything else. I got to go back and get, get my music going. Um, but thanks again, Amit. It was a pleasure having you. Thank we'll have you. to we'll have to see if we can somehow get uh, 
get your dad to come on the show sometime. <laughs> he can talk to us about, you know, stories from the trenches. <laughs> Sounds good. 